everybody's waiting for us to talk about how this relates to sex. Uh, <laughs> no, I would be too, right? I'm with you all. I always say this at the end of what the sermon, like, I know what you're all thinking. How does this relate to sex? Well, it does. <laughs> it does. It does. Welcome to Wild and Sublime, a sexy spin on infotainment, no matter your preferences, orientation, or relationship style. Based on the popular live Chicago show, each week I'll chat about sex and relationships with citizens from the world of sex positivity. You'll hear meaningful conversation, dialogues that go deeper, and information that can help you become more free in your sexual expression. I'm sex educator Karen Yates. This week, we continue our eavesdropping series, extemporaneous, no-holds-barred conversation about sex and intimacy. Today, a deep conversation about the choices we make in relationships with recurring guest Brandon Hunter Hayden. Keep listening. If you are a fan of Wild and Sublime, consider directly supporting the show by becoming a member of the Afterglow, our community on Patreon. Each membership level gives you cool benefits like access to Q&A panels with sexperts, my creator notes, and now merch discounts. And through the end of November 2021, all folks signing up for the $10 a month level or above get a Wild and Sublime sticker immediately. Appleine, our black cat mascot, will remind you daily that you are a sex-positive beast. Meow. This sticker is not available on the website, so get it while it lasts. The link to Patreon and our one-time tip jar is in the show notes. And don't feel like contributing moolah? You can contribute in other ways. Forward this episode, write a review, or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you so much for your support. Hey, folks, if you listened to the last eavesdropping episode with Makes Things Happen a few weeks ago, you might recall that I said that today's episode with intimacy coach and therapist Brandon Hunter Hayden was actually the first eavesdropping episode that I recorded, but that it was so powerful for me that I wanted to hold off a bit before dropping the episode. Part of that is due to the state I was in the day we recorded. I had just come back from an intense event that I talk about today in our conversation, and that, coupled with the question Brandon asked, made for a really deep dialogue. I saw Brandon last week while I was traveling in the Northeast, and we agreed this is not the sort of episode to listen to while you're running errands. It does require some focus. And if you'll recall, the point of the eavesdropping framework is that the guest asks me a question that I don't know in advance, and we take the chat wherever it goes. So sit back and enjoy. Brandon Hunter Hayden, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be back. It's always good to see you. So where shall we begin? I think where I always live, which is, what does it mean to choose pain over suffering? In a variety of contexts, but as a disposition, what does that mean? What does it mean to have an attitude or an approach either to problems or to opportunities or to interactions as choosing pain over suffering, especially when there is a challenge or a conflict mm. Mm. or a desire. 
You know, it's interesting when you say that, when you first said it, I immediately went to kink, right? I immediately mm-hmm. went there. And then I, I saw that like, on your face. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, we're going there. Oh. And then I thought, well, wait, wait a second. You know, because I started thinking about awareness and beliefs and operating from an unconscious place which to me is suffering. And, you know, we've just begun this conversation, so I haven't had any time to really sit with, do I always think suffering is about unconsciousness or not choosing the act of non-choice? You know, there's a, there's a phrase that just gets bandied around to the point where it's meaningless, which is suffering is optional. And, but going to this place of, I, so let me go to pain. Maybe I'll come back to suffering. Yeah. I know something will be really painful. I shy away from it and then sit in suffering. Mm -hmm. And maybe that is, I feel like that could be a little bit of what you're talking about, which is I've been there in uh, several times in my life around relationships where it's, I would rather suffer than go through the pain of leaving, addressing, having a conversation of any sort, being vulnerable. It really comes down to not always, but a lot of times being vulnerable. What do you have to say to that? Yeah, I think that is, that's part of the essence of what I mean when I say it. And I think that, I mean, just to, just to touch back on, on your first little like pointing at, at suffering and what was the phrase suffering is optional. Mm-hmm. Now that might be kind of, I, th- I think I have heard that. And that's not a phrase that I would use necessarily. I think it's different. I think it is different to say, choose pain over suffering rather than suffering is optional. And I think that it extends to all different levels of our experience. And that can be Choosing pain over suffering can be about the hard conversation you, you need to have with your partner about an unmet need or an emerging desire, or even just a, a perturbance, an annoyance between the two of you, or a big change, a new opportunity, or something that will constitute change and growth. I think most, most change requires some level of openness and therefore vulnerability, right? a letting go of a certain kind of attachment to outcomes so that you can move with the dynamics of life. And when we don't do that, and more so when we avoid and shut down and turn away at those moments, that pain gets transmuted into suffering, which is generally more prolonged and more isolating, right? Pain doesn't necessarily have to be isolating. But suffering usually does. It separates us. The feeling can be very similar to isolation, separating us not only from others, but from ourselves, separating us from the parts of ourselves that are our values or our sense of integrity. I would agree. But let me push against that. Sure. So we're very big on the show of talking about communicating, you know, and how important it is and the tough conversations. But there have been many times when these conversations have come up 
And I think this is a beautiful, a beautiful conversation we're having about this exact thing where I think to myself back in the day when I was in a long-term relationship and I'm not going to say hapless because I wasn't hapless. I had done some hardcore work on myself, like intense. And I thought I was on top of my communication game, but I found myself turning away a lot because it was just too frightening to be that vulnerable. Like I just, I mean, I was almost paralyzed or I will say, even if I could get to that place of just squeaking out some sort of need or concern, I would sort of retreat if the conversation didn't develop. And so I think about folks I think about me. I mean, I'm I'm not even going to give it. I'm not even going to give it over to people listening to this. It's more like I think about me and that when I heard people or even my therapist talking about this sort of engagement, vulnerable engagement, I was like, you fucking got to be kidding me. Like, I know it's the answer. I know it's the answer. But inevitably, it's going to get me to a place that I don't want to go to which could potentially mean leaving, you know? Now back to your, you know, the pain part. It really came down to, no, th- no, thank you. I'd rather suffer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, be, it started becoming really clear, like, no, I'd rather just sit here because I just can't. Totally. And, and that's a valid answer. I think the more one... When I work with clients too, I don't, I don't try to frame things as what is the right or the good choice. Sure. Sure. It's how aware of you of the choice that you're making. And it is totally valid to say, I am choosing suffering, right? I'm choosing to not do this thing that elicits a lot of fear and reticence for me. So I am going to choose to sit in silence and to suffer. But I got to tell you, it was not, I mean, I knew eventually that I was making a very active choice to suffer and it was not pleasant. Yes. And I sat there a really long time. Totally. What does that offer? That offers a glimpse into one thing, right? That to some degree we have a relationship with our suffering and that relationship can be participatory, right? That suffering is not. Okay. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? that it doesn't just happen to us. Obviously bad things happen to us. There are a lot of things built into structures into just being human beings. We can talk about how those things bear out, right? We can talk about random unfortunate events. We can talk about how people are victimized by, by others and by, by systems, including all of that. There is also an element of relating to pain in such a way that we might make choices that actually prolong our suffering. And pointing to that example you just shared is that there are moments where Instead of taking an action that would have been painful, maybe even unimaginably so, you knew consciously that you were going to choose a more suffering action for that time period. And in that way, you were making a choice. So you were colluding in that. You had a participatory role in that. There are things in that, in that dynamic that you are not responsible for. However, in that moment, you are having a relationship with suffering that is you know, participatory. I would 100% agree. And I'm, you're also kind of shining a light in, on my memory of 
and this is my inner voice. And, you know, maybe I'll just somehow fall asleep. Like maybe the suffering, maybe I'll fall asleep. The suffering will fall asleep. Maybe we'll just go into this narcoleptic state. And yeah, that's not optimal. (laughs) Narcoleptic states aren't (laughs) optimal, but maybe that's what will happen. And the suffering will get transmuted into this hazy, this is good enough. Mm -hmm. This is good enough. Yeah. And maybe for that time period, that was good enough. Well, it was. And, you know, what I came to was, I will know. This is the only thing I hung my hat on. I will know when to make a different choice. You know, I will know when I need to, I mean, you're, you're framing it in pain and suffering. I framed it in, I will know when it will become acutely, or it'll be so apparent when I need to now make a major change or do something completely different. And I did. It took a couple of years, but it happened. So my question to you as a therapist, you know, and I understand there is no right and wrong. What, let's say you're seeing someone who, and you've had this conversation and they're like, no, man, I'm going to choose suffering. (laughs) And every week they come in or every couple of weeks they come in and they are suffering. What do you say? Most of the time, I think I just try to get with it in a way that we're, if, if that's the choice that's being made, then let's really be with it. What's it like to really be with it? Now, having made that choice, what is the, what's the physical experience of that? What's, how does it touch and impact the rest of your life when you make that choice? Just, just to acknowledge, where does it, where does it live then? If, if that's what we're going to move into, right? And, and not in a way where I'm giving advice, not in a way where I'm admonishing. I don't think that's my role. And I don't, mm-hmm. think, that's, I don't think that's actually helpful for mm-hmm. a lot of people. Sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, with a close friend, it's different, you know, because we call each other on our shit. And I think it's important to have people in your life who will be pretty stark in that way. Sure. But I, I don't see my role most of the time as being that kind of a figure. Because I give yourself permission then to be fully with your choice, whichever one it is. I think back on this phase in my life and of course there was, it impacted every single facet of my life, but I did not realize, I mean, I was not yet in a place where I saw the interconnection of every action, every action's impact across the board in all aspects of life. You know, I hadn't made that leap yet. It would have been valuable at that time to really say, how is this choice, the suffering choice, impacting, say, your career? How is this suffering choice impacting your relationships with your friends? How is this suffering choice impacting your general well-being on a day-to-day basis? Which, of course, it was enormous. I didn't need anyone to tell me that, you know. How, how is it impacting you somatically, right? Mm-hmm. How do you speak to it in your own life? I mean, how do you 
How is it active for you? I have a, for me, one of the biggest things that I come back to is that I don't want to live, I don't want to live a life of cowardice. That's probably my biggest thing. So when I think of like, when I think of my values, this is another thing too, that suffering can create clarity around values. You know, that's, again, this is why I never say it's, it's necessarily the wrong choice. It will have different consequences than making the painful choice. But sometimes we have to, we have to let ourselves keep choosing the suffering and maybe even go to sleep, maybe even get drowsy. And I know that feeling very well. As a nine on the Enneagram, which I am not an expert in, but I know enough about my archetype to know that when I can't find the immediate peaceable solution, when I can't just mediate smoothly everything, I get real sleepy because I have a, con- I have a conflict threshold. And if I feel myself nearing that, then I'm, it's nap time. <laughs> I'm wondering if I'm the same type because I, I tend to just go, mm-hmm. you know, like, yeah. Yeah. That makes increasingly more sense to me as a, as a way of my, my body also and my brain dealing with overwhelm, mm-hmm. right? dealing with a, a possibility that seems so terrifying that it, that it even terrifies me in a mortal way, right? Because we still perce- we can perceive emotional threats the same way we perceive physical threats. Mm-hmm. Our nervous system is going to try to protect us. And that may mean shutting down, dissociating. Yeah. Getting drowsy, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Going down. So, yeah, I think I, I try to bring it back to my values because that's something I can kind of hold on to. I can reach for them, right? I think that's why value, values work is very important in the work that I do because it gives people something to reach out for, to hold on to, something that's a concept, but it's a concept that also like is connected to action, right? And so if a value of mine is integrity, right, or is vulnerability, those are values of mine. And also I can link those to what does it feel like when I do feel like I'm living in integrity, when I say a hard thing that needs to be said, when I feel myself being vulnerable and taking the risk, it's terrifying. But also when I know that I've done it and it's been, it has been in alignment with my desires and my values, I know what that feels like. I can connect a physical state to a concept, to a value. Yeah. I think that's, that's really important. The, the physical connection to the, the value, because I think if you, if you don't connect the two, then it can get kind of the, the value can seem sort of airy. It can, it cannot seem grounded and it becomes painful when you've identified a value and you're living against that value. You're not living in that value. It can be very, very painful in a suffering sort of way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think one, one way to distinguish that painful feeling Right, because because pain sucks to feel, and suffering sucks to feel, but I can usually tell the difference between the two because suffering is usually linked more to shame, mm. because shame might be connected to me living very contrary, making it making a decision that's very contrary to what I know, what I feel is authentic or in alignment with the kind of person that I want to be, mm-hmm. or the, the values that I want to step into you know, in society. Yeah. For being, I think the way I frame it is, is being a coward. I feel shame when I feel like I've been a coward. I'll return to our conversation in a moment. Did you know we have sex positive resources on our website? If you want to find events, professional support, and more go to wildandsublime.com. 
Wild and Sublime is supported in part by our Sublime supporter, Full Color Life Therapy. Therapy for all of you at fullcolorlifetherapy.com. We now return to my dialogue with intimacy coach and therapist Brandon Hunter Hayden, where we discuss what I did earlier in the day, relationship expectations and the matrix. You know, something you said on the show, and I think I've, I've reminded you of it on the podcast is, you know, people have two separate fears. One is the fear of being destroyed and the other is the fear of being abandoned. Yeah. Yep. And that struck me at the time because I could relate. And for me, part of this idea of destruction or getting beyond the fear of destruction is really having a sense, an inviolate sense of self that is not going to be destroyed. Like being so present with self, so full with self, that no matter what happens, you are okay. And I'm coming to like a deeper place with that lately in my life, to the point where I am, I'm deeply satisfied with the relationship I'm having with myself. And that changes everything. It changes how I interact with people it changes the depth of my conversation and the, my ability to be vulnerable. And so I'd like to like kind of bring that idea into this conversation we're having around being vulnerable or the fear of being vulnerable when you actually really think a piece of you, if not all of you, is going to be destroyed. Mm-hmm. Like how, how does one work with that? Well, I think you touched on it. It's identifying in whatever ways, looking for the parts of self that are irreducible, that are indestructible, but also maybe finding not only a tolerance, but maybe as in time, a celebration for how much is destructible, how much is therefore changeable. And when we look at those things, we can identify what we're clinging to. Clinging is the word that I would use here. Right? Look for the things that we're attached to. You know, we can be attached to people. We can be attached to what they represent in our lives. We can be attached to a desire. We can be attached to values. And it's natural to be attached to things right? in order to form a characterization of self, especially in, 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 our, in our Western context. But to look at what we're actually clinging to. And like you said before, a value can be something that's really almost abstruse. It can be really heady and cerebral. But if we don't have a real connection to that, sometimes we can ideologically cling to things rigidly Mm. despite its impact on us. Mm -hmm. Despite the impact that it's having, the way that it's living out through us on other people. And that can become toxic, right? Or stale. So I think it it is introducing the permissible idea that there are going to be parts of us that are inviolate, like you say, indestructible, irreducible, and there are going to be parts of us that even, even if we thought they were permanent, you know, core facets of ourselves are actually, actually, uh, soluble. You know, it's really interesting. You're bringing this up and I'm smiling because, you know, my life is such that I notice there's really no, uh, chance conversations anymore in my life. It's like everything is woven together. And this, this might be a, a TMI moment, but I'm going, to, I'm going to forge ahead. Today, I did some very intense work. Today would have been my mother's 90th birthday. Mm. 
I've had some conversations with a spiritual mentor around looking at, I had a difficult relationship with her. And so looking at like, what have I chucked out the window of the gifts that she gave me, you know, in opposition and oppositional energy. No, no, you know, my mother and I had a terrible relationship. I am going to reject all of her. Okay. Maybe I can like accept a part, but like all of this opposition and what is it doing to me? Well, I embarked on this whole thing because I knew her birthday was coming up and I thought, you know, this feels like a ritual and I've never done one of these kind of things. I've never, even though I'm very, you know, involved in the world of energy and, and rituals are kind of stock and trade and I believe in them, I've never done one at this level for myself, like done the work. And her, her grave is not so f- very far from my place. It's about 45 minute drive. So I went out there today and basically I had in preparation written out all of the gifts that she had given me mm. and, you know, aspects of self that had firmly become, you know, a part of me. And in the middle of all of this, I realized that by opposing her, I was opposing myself because there was such a large, large piece of her in me. And yet at the same time, in conversation with this mentor of mine later, I realized, and he rightfully put it this way, he's like, you know, you're, you're actually having a bit of a funeral for yourself because these aspects that you've held on to thinking, there's many aspects too that you've held on thinking are your aspects. Mm-hmm. And they're actually her aspects that you took on because you were in this wrestling match with her. And the whole arc of identifying, writing, choosing, figuring out how I was going to do the ritual, everything. It was, it was intense and it was powerful. And at the end of the day, I felt lighter, you know, and not like I feel like I'm a tabula rasa right now, but I do feel like there's intense possibilities that have not existed before. And I also see them in newer relationships I'm having with people and old, older relationships that have now fallen by the wayside. And it's all part of this action of what am I choosing? Because you get back to this choosing piece and it's like, how much awareness can you live in? Because I'm aware of every day when I walk through my day, if I'm feeling uncomfortable, I'm actually wrestling with myself. I'm not wrestling with you or you or you. I'm wrestling with myself and concepts that I'm holding onto. And sometimes I can even laugh at myself. Like I was having lunch today because I actually had a funeral lunch after <laughs> the <laughs> funeral. Nice. Uh, yeah, it was pretty fun. And there was a group of people and I was sitting there <laughs> outside just judging the fuck out of them. And it, made me laugh because I'm like, look at you. You're just sitting here judging them. And why? Why? Because of X, Y, and Z, Mm -hmm. you know, these aspects. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm not even sure how I got to this relaying this story, but I think it's around the destruction of aspects of self or identity. You know, how do we put our identity together? Mm -hmm. Are we a mosaic? Is it woven what's going on you know well i love what you brought up about laughing at yourself because it reminds me of what alan watts the philosopher the late philosopher described who's a controversial figure 
um, but I really like a lot of his material as the cosmic giggle. And that is the part of self or even something before self that is always able to laugh at what you take seriously or what's going on. And I don't say this to be flippant about structural oppression, about real life harms and atrocities that play out. It's not about, it's not about locating all, all experience into, you know, what you choose to make of it, right? Things do happen to us and we do need to be able to indict oppression. We do need to be able to locate how systems fail and how structures that we're attached to, that we cling to are sorely outdated and only continue to cause suffering. And at the same time, coexisting within ourselves, a part of ourselves that's always able to look at our experience and our reactions to our experience is kind of funny. It's kind of ridiculous. And I think part of that is the shift between, as Alan Watts says, is the shift between taking life seriously or being sincere. And those are two different things. Those are two different feeling states. Those are two different approaches. And that often taking things very seriously can lead to suffering, can lead to clinging. Doing things sincerely is still an emotional investment. We still hurt. We still feel. We still crave and love. We still get to feel the full range. But there's a part of ourselves that knows that part of this is a play. Right. Yeah. That there's a giggle behind all of this and that we exist in a blip in time, you know, in, in space time. And we can do what we do. We have to be human. Right. But there's a, there's a part of ourselves that we can touch upon, or at least maybe even here in the back of our consciousness at any given moment, especially when we're being petty, <laughs> especially when we're, you know, when we are like judging others or, uh, you know, drawing a fit about, about certain things, which is fine. But as long as there's a part of ourselves that can stop taking ourselves too seriously. And sometimes that can actually be really helpful in moments of great suffering around like, ah, you know, I keep shying away from that hard conversation, even though I know that this is thing I really need to say. And every day that I don't say it, I feel like a coward and I feel shame for not saying it. And then I know that if someone were doing that to me, I would find that untrustworthy. Oh my God, I can, it keeps piling onto myself, right? I keep this neutron star, you know, just gravity crushing in on myself and imploding. But if I can find that part of me, that's like, you know what? Yeah. And this is a blip mm. in eternity, right? Oh my I, God. I, yes. I'm, I'm a particle on a particle in a sea of particles in like an insignificant part of a galaxy. <laughs> you know, I'm like, an, I'm like, like, like universe's okayest star, you know, that I'm orb orbiting. So if there's a part of me that's like, yeah, I don't have to take this seriously because on an existential level, I would say even on just a realistic physical level, this doesn't last forever. There's no way this will last forever. The thing that I fear the most will not last forever. Maybe I can laugh at this. What room now does that afford me between me and the problem? Yeah, what yeah. sliver, right, wedges itself of humor or of breath? How does that change my relationship with my experience of suffering? For sure. Yeah, you're reminding me that like years ago, I, I, I don't know, somewhere where there were like a lot of Christmas, Christmas lights inside and they were blinking on and off at various points. And I was like, yeah, this is like life. People are dying they're blinking out. Other lights are blinking in. This is what's going on right now. And it was actually really beautiful because it just made me realize there's a concert. There's a symphony of life surging in to the planet and life leaving. Like at every single moment, people are dying and people are being born. 
And it, it's a great comfort, actually. I found it super comforting. Uh, it really helped me. There's something else you were saying that I was thinking about another conversation I was having today that, oh, you were talking about the super hard conversation. You're like, oh, I know I should, I really need to be doing that conversation. And I haven't done that conversation yet. And I really need to. I have a friend and she's actually, for whatever reason, she's a newer friend in my life. I've known her a couple of years and she is that person that I get to, we're really good at having these hard conversations with each other. Mm. I don't know how it happened. I think it's just our chemistry and where we are in our lives, but we can navigate pretty quickly the shit that happens between us. And wow, what a gift. It's a real gift because it's gotten to the point where it's just not even, well, still a little painful. I mean, I don't think those conversations are ever like super easy. Maybe they will be someday for me, but it's just very nice having having her in my life, as well as I've noticed sometimes I will practice vulnerability with acquaintances and then I build a muscle, you know, I build a muscle of being able to do this kind of work. You know, it's like concentric mm-hmm. circles working in until you get to like great friends and lovers. <laughs> sometimes it's easier with a stranger. Sometimes it's easier to say like something you've been holding onto for years in casual conversation with a stranger because they're not attached to you in any other way. Yeah. And, and it happens. You can have these moments of pretty intimate sharing. Maybe they don't even realize how, how meaningful it is to you. You find yourself. I know I have done it. I have definitely shared things that I've never said to anyone else to a stranger as a way of like, just hearing myself speak it. Now I know it's possible. Right. Right. Just to tie this into the juicier parts of, of, you know, where this conversation, everybody's waiting for us to talk about how this relates to sex. Uh, (laughs) I know it. No, I I would be too. Right. I'm with you all. I always Uh, say this at the end of the sermon, like, I know what you're all thinking. How does this relate to sex? Well, it does. (laughs) It does. It does. I mean, it doesn't take a lot to extend this into scenarios where people are trying to express themselves erotically, right? Sexually or relationship wise things that they are curious about or that they know that they need or that they know that they desire and how there's so many prohibitions culturally, you know, psychologically around our ability to even want what we want or have fantasies, even if they're things we don't want in real life. There's so many prohibitions and and so much stigma around that barriers to us expressing ourselves. And that all that colludes on top of our own complexes around who we're allowed to be and um, what kind of moral judgment there is around even saying something that could be hard for another person to hear. We don't have a lot of permission sometimes to say, you know what, I feel close to you and it's a, it's a value of mine to be honest. And I would always want you to feel like you could share hard things with me. This is a fantasy I've always had. Right. And it's just the fantasy. It's just something that I, you know, that I've used for my own self-pleasure or that has even involuntarily come into my mind. And I'm not even saying right now, this is a thing that I have to have. It's just the thing that is a part of me and I want you to know me. So I, maybe I don't even know what it's all about, but can you hear me say this to you? And sometimes that can be, we've talked about this before in previous episodes, that that can be the birth of intimacy between people. Simply witnessing and giving permission for like an unknown part of your partner to emerge, right? If we can hold the space long enough to not, not react in fear of that, because right? I can challenge our, our concept of who that person is that we're attached to so that we feel safe <laughs> so that we know what's going on. But if we can, if we can make a little room for possibility, 
sense of possibility to come forward that can actually be really intimidating and really healing for a lot of people. Wow. There, there are so many things you said just now that are just like hitting me at 60 miles an hour. And so I want to go back. Yeah. <laughs> so the first is I loved what you said that just speaking it without expectation, mm-hmm. because I think so often it's like, if one brings it up to a partner, there's potentially an expectation. I would like this to happen either for, you know, the partner is afraid or you desperately want it to happen, but to just name it and with no, just put it on the table to say, this is me. This is part of me. Know me. That's fantastic. The other thing you said, and you said it really quickly. I think what I heard you say was, you know, as the partner receiving this potential fantasy that might be a game changer in whatever way, at the very least how you see your partner, the more we're looking to other people to be our bulwark or anchor or the thing that fills the hole inside, that is not a recipe for disaster, but this is what these moments of like where the mask gets removed and you see maybe more of the person, these can be very upsetting moments, you know, of a partner being very vulnerable and being like, this is me, I'm bisexual, Mm -hmm. or this is me, I want you to beat me. Mm -hmm. It can be very disorienting, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And seeing couples too, that's also, it's so important to validate that, how hard it is for both however many people are involved in the unveiling of truth and the, in the expression of vulnerability, it's going to challenge everybody to some degree or another. And that that's normal. That's part of what makes the vulnerability so valuable to everybody who's involved in it. Why? Because when a person is allowed to be a dynamic and changing entity, because we all inherently are in front of us and they choose to share that with us in a way that is as respectful and as tender as they know how to do, It also gives us a chance to become aware of the fact that, oh, the things that made me feel safe about, you know, whatever was is attached to this expression, there are things that I, this character of a person, right, that I had formed in my mind. And that's what made me feel that sense of predictability, that sense of stability that I need in a relationship that I want to feel in a relationship. So I feel safe and that I know what's going to happen. The real thing that we get to hold on to is that integrity that's underneath expression is that desire to be known and that we're committed to each other enough that we want to be seen, that we want to expand in front of each other. That's the actual thing to attach to, not whatever the detail is, not the value that has changed, not the idea that I never knew you were by side, I thought you were straight, or I didn't know you liked about stuff, stuff like whatever that is, right? That's the stuff that's going to change on the surface, right? The doing stuff, the interest. But the underneath thread, the real thing to attach to, to acknowledge the security and stability and the investment in the relationship is, wow, the desire to be known. This person is choosing me to do that with me. That's incredibly vulnerable, right? I think as long as people are doing this in a way that is respectful and, you know, has some adherence to, you know, boundaries and, and things like that, I think that that's, that's a real opportunity to find out where the, where the actual anchors in the connection are. Yeah. And I think kink can offer a lot of people both the skills and the embodied experience of what it's like to live into those aspects of self that are otherwise forbidden 
or hidden, too, too taboo for the world. I would agree. And I would also throw in a, a rousing endorsement for The Wheel of Consent, Betty Martin's work. Totally. In the fact that if you, you know, potentially don't, you may not be kinky, but you want a very structured, extremely structured way of trying new things, getting to know yourself in your relational dynamic or your transactional dynamic. That's pretty golden stuff too. It is. I love, I love May I Will You. Just that exercise alone is, is so powerful around practicing yes and no. Yes. And seeing and feeling what it feels like in your body to form the word no and yes, right? Through that exercise in real time. Right, right. It's important to, yes, to feel the yes, to feel the no, because all of these powerful words have, you know, physical resonance in our body when our mouth forms, the sounds come out and we have to feel it, Mm -hmm. you know, there's receive it, receive it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 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 And work with these, work with these moments really slowly. Don't gloss over them. Take it in. And however much time you need to take in, I'm sort of thinking of the matrix and the (laughs) slow-mo bullet coming at you, you know, take it in to the point where you can pluck the bullet out of the air. Yeah, (laughs) totally. Look at it and be like, this is a bullet and I've just plucked it out of the air. (laughs) It's it's uncanny you say that. I was just watching a ton of matrix clips on YouTube last night. (laughs) Really? I was just like, yeah. I mean, that was so... That was such a coming of age, like error for me. And that oh, whole, first God. of all, that whole aesthetic definitely was like a, was like an expression of my, of my sexual orientation. <laughs> if I, if I could just have people watch the, you know, the original trilogy, uh, that would really answer a lot of questions. I think, <laughs> Or at least give a lot of clues. It would give a, it would give a lot of clues you could follow up on. Oh my God. That's great. That's great here. This is all you need to know about me. <laughs> Here's your starter kit. Watch these. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Hmm. And I don't know about you, but I, you know, part of my baggage is if I ask a question or I express an interest or a desire that is met with a no, then I was wrong for asking that in the first place because I should have known better. And I know Hmm. a lot of people have that, right? That there's actual hearing no is wrapped up with a moral implication that you already fucked up by expressing yourself, that you should have, you ought to have known better. And that asking the thing was painful or disruptive or wrong enough that that person now has to tell you no. Right. And that can really, I know that used to send me on the, on the spiral roller coaster hardcore. And it used to be really hard to hear right now. Yeah. Yeah. Took a lot of work to learn the value of receiving a no. And now I, I love it. It makes it so, it makes another person so trustworthy and it gives us an opportunity then to, to stay curious about the no, about my reaction to the no and, and still have the conversation. It doesn't have to be the end. Right. It's actually the beginning to a more honest, like where you are actually at in that conversation and no just puts you on the right platform of of where you're at now in that conversation. Hmm. It's hard. It's hard, but it's, it's so powerful. It's so interesting. I'm thinking about where we began the conversation and where we are now. And I'm thinking, because like 
at the beginning of the conversation, I was really coming back to myself years ago, right? Before I had had sort of an alchemical transformation, right? And now listening as we kind of are, are coming closer to the end, I'm like, oh yeah, this is why I do it. This is why I am always trying to go for more vulnerability because there is so much freedom. There's so much freedom in just being oneself. Everything falls away. I mean, really, everything falls away. Mm-hmm. I, and I think about in the past couple of weeks and the conversations I've had lately with various people, it feels like, oh, wow, there was a drag on my motor and I didn't even realize it. And then an important conversation happens and it's like something gets released. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, that was good glad that conversation took place mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. yeah and i want to make room that of course there are there are situations where it is it is not safe to be honest that's right but there there is real threat to life and livelihood and access mm-hmm. to resources because because again we do live in in a series of systems and structures that are not oriented to equity and we have only, we've barely begun to even acknowledge the suffering right, that, that is continuing to, to be sown before we can even acknowledge the painful choices we have to make about what kind of changes we want to make before it's too late. So I want to, of course, make room for that. But obviously, we are talking about, aside from situations where there's an, an immediate incredible threat, you know, that yes, it is worth, it is worth maybe shifting away from taking things too seriously to being sincere, to finding the cosmic giggle behind the moment to laugh at yourself and your situation mm-hmm. and to ask yourself, especially when we are feeling in our suffering, when, when we're in our shame, you know, the more I think about it, is this feeling worse? Is this probably worse than how it would feel to make the painful choice? Maybe I'm more used to this. So suffering can be much more familiar. Oh, bingo. I mean, I think that's you know? it. I think it's the fact that suffering is if, if you, I shouldn't say you, if I, and I have had much longer stretches of suffering in my life than pain. And so it's so funny. These cicadas are just rocking the house behind me. Yeah, they are. I don't know if you can hear me. But it's like suffering just became the operating system or I thought that was, this is the way it is, Mm -hmm. you know? And so to, to wake up to a different choice, can be shocking because then sometimes I think anger comes up. I knew someone years ago who said a starving person only becomes angry when they start becoming fed. And I always take it as, you know, if we, if we make deprivational choices for ourselves, when we finally do start feeding ourselves, we realize, wow, you know, we or I have been choosing a deprivational mm-hmm. life. I have been choosing suffering all along and I didn't have to do that. Yes. But, you know, I'm also aware the, the other piece that I'd wanted to say earlier, but it got away from me is I don't regret anymore those years where I was like, I would rather be um, living in a narcoleptic haze than make the painful choice. 
because what I did learn was compassion. Yes. For others. I learned, Hey, that was the best I could do. If I could have done differently, I would have, I would have, we all do the best. We choose the best option we can at the time. I just wasn't able to make a different choice, you know? Yes. I love that. Yeah. And, and that equips you to both be more compassionate with yourself and others. And at the same time, set firmer boundaries, set more clear boundaries that are rooted in what you have lived through, through your lived embodied experience of, of knowing what it's like to choose that over and over to be on the other side of it and to be compassionate towards others while also being able to speak directly and clearly to it when that's not going to work for you in a relationship dynamic. For sure. Yes. Right? So it goes yes. together. That compassion and that clarity of boundary actually goes, they go together. <laughs> I feel like, I feel like I should say boobs. I should just say boobs a few times just to add a, <laughs> add a, like a, like a spice. I mean, I, I love getting, I love going to, to me, I mean, to me, this is, this is perfectly luscious to have these kinds of conversations get existential, but that's not everybody's cup of tea. I, think. I know, I know. I'm sitting here thinking, I'm like, <laughs> wow. I feel like we're just in this like black velvet cosmic, like we're spelunking. Yeah, and it's just like, and then, <laughs> what's happening? <laughs> what, what's happening to people who are listening? <laughs> I think that, I think this one was I think this one was for you and me. <laughs> oh my god! I have to go back and listen to it. I'm like, what? Well, it's not the most popular one. Uh, I, I'm sorry, but. Yeah. <laughs> I'm already putting the title together. Pain versus suffering in sex yeah. and relationships. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Folks are gonna they're gonna be pissed. <laughs> <laughs> well, we did it. I mean we, we did it. you know. We'll do it again. We will. For more information on Brandon Hunter Hayden, go to our show notes. Well, that's it, folks. Have a very pleasurable week. Thank you for listening. If you know someone who might be interested in this episode, send it to them. Do you like what you heard? Then give us a nice review on your podcast app. You can follow us on social media at Wild and Sublime and sign up for newsletters at wildandsublime.com. I'd like to thank associate producer Julia Williams and design guru Jean-Francois Gervais. Theme music by David Ben Porat. This episode was edited by the Creative Imposter Studios. Our media sponsor is Rebellious Magazine, Feminist Media, at rebelliousmagazine.com. 